Our epistle lesson this morning is from Revelation 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And one of them spoke with me, uh, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city in its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacket, and the twelfth amethyst. In the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. In the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, 
the Almighty in the land. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor any, anyone who deserves what is who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, the, the water of life, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now. We thank you so much for your word, for what you're doing and what is left to be done. We thank you for this city that's coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. As we look into your word, we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you would say to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make to each of you. I'm a baseball player, through and through. And for those baseball players in the room, you know what I mean when I say that. I've been a baseball player my entire life. As long as I can remember, since I was five years old, I played baseball. Even now, at 34 years old, I still go out with, and I have very bad knees, and I play slow-pitch softball. And right now, you might be thinking, Justin, even in those few words, I know exactly who you are. I've got you pegged. You're the guy that goes out on the softball field and tries to relive the glory days. You're the guy that can't let it go. So you go out and you play softball. To which I would reply to you, Yes, of course I am. I'm a baseball player. I would argue that that's kind of the essence of what it means to be a baseball player, that every time you step out on the field, you're stepping into something that it's like life the way it's supposed to be. Or to put it in the words of the great theologian Jimmy Dugan from A League of Their Own, baseball is what gets inside you it's what lights you up. Those of you who are baseball players or softball players in the room today, you know exactly what I'm saying. When you step out on the diamond, just for a brief moment, you get a glimpse of the way life is supposed to be. In 2014, my wife and I moved to Belfast uh, for my education. We, were, we lived there about four years. We were there from 2014 to 2018. 
And during that time, we went through periods of great struggle, loneliness, missing home. I grew up in Florida, after all. I like the sunlight. Turns out, Northern Ireland doesn't have a whole lot of sunlight in the wintertime, especially. It gets dark at like 4 o'clock. There are periods of just great struggle, missing home, loneliness. And one day, I was delighted to find out at church that a friend of mine had invited me to come play softball in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I thought, first of all, what? You play softball here? Oh yeah, there's a league. Six teams. It's not much. We go out to a soccer field, or to them football. And we just put some bases down and we play. There's no fence. And I said, I'm in. So I would go and I would play. And for that hour, whenever we would play our games, I'd feel like I'm at home. Life, the way it's supposed to be. A glimpse into a world. And for us today as the church, as citizens of Zion, living in a foreign land, we feel that. We have moments where we get to see ever so slightly the kingdom of God breaking into the present world, and yet we long for the, fu- for the fulfillment, the fruition, the city that is to come, when we will experience life in all of its fullness. And so at the end of the book of Revelation, and ultimately, the conclusion of all of Scripture, it brings us to this vision, this city of God, this New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And John recounts this vision of the city, and we're invited to take a tour of the city, to move around the city, and peer at it, and long for the day when it is here in all of its fullness. And as we kind of journey around the city, there are really four aspects to this city that we need to latch on to this morning. The first of these is the joy of the city. The the vision of the New Jerusalem begins, after all, with John recalling that the city is ultimately a new heaven and new earth. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which actually harks back to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah, uh, throughout the book of, the, of, of Isaiah, there is this hope that continues to build throughout the book of Isaiah, that a renewed Zion, a renewed Jerusalem, the mountain of God, go, it, the light of God shines forth from Jerusalem, and one day, ultimately, this snowball that continues to build and build and build becomes a boulder by the end of Isaiah to where we're now talking about a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. John begins the vision of the new Jerusalem 
by talking about the new heaven and the new earth, this city that comes down from heaven. And look at verse three, verses three and four. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The thing that marks the city is first and foremost that God is there. The presence of God is the, the, the mark of the city from which everything else flows. And because of that, there is great joy in the city where the presence of God is is where life is supposed to be. It's the way that life is supposed to be. Where great joy and fulfillment are there. The second aspect of this is not just the joy of the city, but the holiness of the city. Now, to understand the holiness of the city of God, we first need to recognize that holiness is not a new concept by the time you get to Revelation. If you think back to the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus especially, you find the holy presence of God that, that comes down on the, mount, on the mountain of Sinai and resides in the tabernacle. This portable sanctuary, that after the construction of the portable sanctuary, the Israelites, it's incumbent upon them to live lives that reflect holiness. A holy God dwells in their midst and so they must live in a way that reflects that reality. That in the inner sanctum of the sanctuary is the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwells. And radiating out from there are various gradations of holiness as you draw closer and closer and closer to the presence of God. And what marks that sanctuary is what scholars call material gradation, which is simply that in the construction of the sanctuary, in its symbolism that reflects the holiness of God, as you go closer and closer to the presence of God, as you go, as you go further and further into the sanctuary, you, you encounter more precious and costly materials. There are materials that reflect the holiness of God as you go closer and closer to the inner sanctum. The altar in the courtyard, for example, is made of bronze. But there is another altar, an incense altar, as you go into the holy place that's made of gold. The Ark of the Covenant, for example, is, is, made, uh, is overlaid with gold. Gold is associated with the holy of holies to reflect the most holy place where God dwells. If you look with me in Revelation 21, verse 15 and following, you, fi you find these words. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city in its gates and walls. The city lies four square and its length uh, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 
144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It's interesting that John wants us to know not only the dimensions of this, this gargantuan city, but that he wants us to know it's four square, it's cubed shape. Why? There's only one other cube in all of the Bible, and that is the Holy of Holies. And so what John seems to be getting at here is that the entire city is holy, like the Holy of Holies. Not only that, the streets are made of gold. The city is associated with gold and precious gems that reflect its holiness. Now, if you were to look at this and say, well, you know, the city, the streets are made of gold, how decadent and how opulent the city, you would be correct. That is exactly right. What more are we to think? Of course it's opulent and decadent. But this points to the holiness of the city, that the entire city is where the dwelling of God is. And this is seen most clearly in Revelation 21 and 20, uh, in Re Revelation 21, 22 and 23, when John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So not only is the city made of gold, John is looking and he's expecting to see a temple, which is exactly what you would expect to see in any city in the ancient world. You would look to the highest part of the city, most likely some mountain in the city where the temple would be built. Ancient cities have temples. And he says, I looked and I saw no temple. What's the point of this? What John is getting at here is that the city has no holy precinct within it because the entirety of the city is holy. There's no temple because the dwelling of God is what marks the entirety of the city. And so the city has gold streets, the city is pure gold, and it is holy. And so in order to enter that city, in order to take part in that city and become a citizen of Zion, holiness is required. But it's not by our own holiness. Christ has accomplished this on our behalf. Christ has made a way for us to be made holy through his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection. We become citizens of Zion, not by our own holiness or righteousness, but because of what Christ has done. And so we look forward to this city that is to come, that's marked by holiness. And so our lives ought to be geared toward holiness, oriented toward holiness. May we be ever growing in holiness because the city of God is a holy city. And as, in, as ambassadors of that city, may we reflect that city to those who see us. The third aspect of this city as we peer, uh, peer around its corners is not just the joy of the city or the holiness of the city, 
but also the peace of the city. If you look in verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. The new Jerusalem looks forward to a time when, uh, of universal peace, when the kings of the earth bring their glory into it, when the nations live in peace and prosperity. Again, picking up on the, some of the, visioning, the vision and terminology from Isaiah, the new Jerusalem looks forward to a time of great peace. If you'll recall in Isaiah chapter two, Isaiah begins his book at the very beginning of the book, toward the beginning of the book, Isaiah two, the mount looks forward to a time when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised above all the mountains and the law will go forth from Zion. And what happens as a result of that? Universal peace ensues. Nations will take their plowshares take their swords and beat them into plowshares. They'll take their pruning hooks and beat them into implements of peace. And this is picked up again in Isaiah 11, which kind of connects this vision in Isaiah 2 with the Davidic kingship that's to come. And this passage will be familiar to you because we, the, this passage tends to be read at Christmas time uh, quite, quite a bit. Isaiah, beginning, uh, Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. This city looks forward to a time when this promise is realized in all of its fullness. When the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city and live in peace and harmony, a peace that is so, felt so strongly, that radiates, radiates so strongly throughout the city and throughout the, the new created order that it's even felt in the natural order that the child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child putting their hand on the adder's den. And so our lives as ambassadors of the city of Zion the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, ought to be marked by this peace. Our lives ought to reflect peace to the world and not turbulence. Lastly, the fourth aspect of this, uh, as we tour through the city, is the life of the city. If you look with me in 22, verse, beginning in verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, uh, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they, they, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's three things to see here as it relates to the life of the city. The first one should be fairly obvious, the tree of life. If those of you familiar with the broad meta-narrative of Scripture, the big picture of Scripture, will know that the tree of life, we see it in the book of Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, but we don't see it much throughout the rest of the, rest of the Bible until here. The tree of life kind of bookends the meta-narrative, the grand picture of Scripture. Although man was created to live in perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden, created to live in perfect harmony with God, you know that that quickly faded away in light of man's sin. Man was banished from the tree of life so that he may not reach out and take from it and live forever in his fallen state. But here in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life is present. And we're not guarded from it. We're not banished from it. The tree of life is there. It's for the healing of the nations. To take of its fruit is to bring rejuvenation and life. Because why? Death has been defeated. Christ has overcome. He has won the victory. And so the tree of life awaits the citizens of Zion. The second aspect to see here is that there will be nothing accursed. Not only does the tree of life hark back to Genesis, but also this aspect of cursing. In the New Jerusalem, nothing will be accursed. You and I have, even in our best of days on this earth, have never experienced a day in our single lives that's not under the curse of sin. We live in a world that's marked by the curse of sin. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, you know that the ground was, was cursed. Thistles and thorns sprouted up. Pain in childbearing resulted. Cursing of the serpent. But the city of God looks forward to a time when the curse of sin is done away with in all of its entirety. Although we live in a, in a time of thistles and thorns, although we live in a time of shark week and dominance, there's coming a time when the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And so the life of God radiates out from the city. Life the way it's supposed to be. Finally, we see this aspect of seeing God's face. Those of you who know, uh, read the Psalms, you know that constantly what we find in the Psalms, especially in Psalms dealing with temple worship, is this pursuit of God's face. To worship at God's temple is to seek the face of God. 
Going back to the book of Exodus, you might recall in 33 and 34, Moses, on top of Mount Sinai, has this close encounter with God where he longs to see the face of God. And he is only able to see the back of him. The psalmist longed to see the face of God. To worship God is to seek the face of God. But the new Jerusalem, the city coming down from heaven, says that there is a time when we will see the face of God, that we will live in the light of his face. Psalm 27 puts, the the worshiper puts it this way. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. When Zion comes down from heaven, it will be a city that is marked not by death and cursing, but life and blessing. And we will see the face of God. And we will realize in all of its fullness the blessing that we hear here at Christ Church all the time, the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And so as exiles in a foreign land, as citizens of Zion and as ambassadors of that city, as we, as we journey through this world, may we reflect this city. May the world see in us the hope of Zion, the city of our God. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that through your finished work of death, burial, and resurrection, that you have made a way for us to be holy, to be citizens of the new Jerusalem. God, as we go out from here, as the church, the temple of God on earth, may we live lives that are oriented not toward our present, but toward the city to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.